you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. We'll cover the second half of Acts 6, and we'll start to also look at Acts chapter 7, Stephen's defense before the council, but Acts chapter 6. Uh, last week in the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6, we looked at the fourth in a series of four threats, if you remember, um, from without and from within that the early church that was growing there in Jerusalem faced. This final threat we saw was the threat of division and distraction. And it was met by the apostles as they um, they kept the word and prayer central by wisely asking the church to come alongside and aid them in appointing seven spirit-filled wise leaders who would serve alongside them. Uh, just like many that we face as churches and as people, it could have led to division in the church or it could have led to a distraction from the teaching of God's word and to, from prayer. But by God's grace, this gospel engine was kept at the front of the train and it continued to drive forward the growth of the church and the glory of God among them. And so they've made it through this this particular storm as well as these other three threats. And we see in the next two chapters of Acts that two of the newly appointed leaders, namely Stephen and Philip, become instrumental in taking the gospel from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria as Jesus had commanded them to do before his departure. If you look at the book of Acts up to this point, the the early church has been incubating. It's been sort of thriving and growing in this one key location here in Jerusalem. But now it's about to to spread out um, in, in a way that we haven't yet seen. In fact, I would say that Acts 6 verse 8 marks a new section of the book that takes us all the way up to the end of chapter 12 and entering into chapter 13. It's there in chapter 13 that we see that people are purposefully sent out of the church to take the gospel uh, to others. And it's in these chapters, chapters 7 through 12, that there's, there's still threats to the gospel, but these storms have been, have been weathered well, and the track is now laid for this, this, again, this gospel-fueled train of the church to head all the way to the ends of the earth. Uh, along with these characters, so we see Stephen and Philip, this chapter is also going to introduce us to Saul in chapter 9. Um, Saul, who will become the apostle to the Gentiles, and he will become the key character for the rest of the book of Acts. And it also introduces us to Cornelius in chapters 10 and 11, who is the first Gentile convert to Christianity through the ministry of Peter. So these chapters are centered around these four guys, Stephen, Philip, Saul, and Cornelius. And so Luke is moving our focus from Jerusalem and from specifically Jewish converts to Christianity. And he's moving us from that to see the gospel spreading to all nations. And the way we first see this is through the dramatic life, testimony, and death of Stephen. Stephen is the first martyr of the Christian church. Martyr meaning that that he is the first follower of Jesus to die for his faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. And his defense in chapter 7 is actually the longest speech or sermon in the entire book of Acts. And yet his great faith and his skill as a defender of the gospel are only seen for this short period of time, it would seem. Stephen appears like a like a shooting star in the book of Acts. He is 
brilliant and he's beautiful, but he's only briefly seen. As I thought about that, I thought that that's, that's how many great figures in church history are, aren't they? I think I thought of Jim Elliott, who was killed along with uh, four other missionaries as they sought to take the gospel to the natives of Ecuador. Jim Elliott was only 28 years old when he died, but his his journals and his testimony live on through his writings and also through the writings of his wife, Elizabeth, and they've inspired many to walk the same path that, that he walked, even though he was only alive for a short period of time. People have followed in his footsteps and believed what he wrote where he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I thought about another guy named Robert Murray McShane. Uh, He was a pastor and a man of great prayer. He was a minister in the Church of Scotland, and he died of, of typhus at just 29 years old. But even today, people benefit from his letters and also from the Bible reading plan that he compiled that many uh, have already gone through. And like these men, Stephen's testimony, it seems short, but we find that, that who he was and what he said had a deep and lasting impact on the church in his day and on us even today. And so we're going to take three weeks to consider this man, to think about the words that he spoke and the manner in which he died. He was a man of undisputed wisdom and faith, filled with God's Spirit. He was a man who spoke with boldness and knowledge about who Jesus was. He was a man who died for the faith that we hold. And so Stephen is one of our great forefathers in the faith. And I hope that we're able to learn from him and the way that God used and worked through him. Before we read Stephen's great defense, which we're going to do later, we find that the the stage is set for his words in chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. So look at these words first. Chapter 6 of Acts, verses 8 through 15. We read, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen, we saw last week, was a man that was full of wisdom and of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then here in verse 8, we're told that he was also full of grace and power, such that he was doing wonders and signs among the people. Like Peter, he was probably healing the sick and casting out evil spirits. He may have been doing this before the events of of verses 1-7 through in chapter 6, but it was probably after the apostles had laid their hands on him that God then empowered him to do these miraculous work and, and continue to take the gospel forward in the city. And just like with the apostles in chapter 5, all of these displays of wisdom and of power prompted a confrontation with the various synagogue leaders. They're described there in verse 9 as being from different regions around Jerusalem. They had gathered into specific synagogues. 
And it would seem that they were predominantly Hellenists. They were, they were Greek speaking and, and Greek cultured, uh, Jews that had formed these synagogues. But there's also this synagogue of the freedmen, which was probably made up of former slaves. And Stephen seems to, for some reason, have chosen to share the good news with these gatherings in particular. Probably Stephen was a Hellenist and had a particular voice with these synagogues. And so they came together and they discussed who Jesus was and what this salvation through faith meant. And as they disputed with Stephen, they found that they couldn't withstand his wisdom. They they could not withstand the spirit that was in him. They tried to debate him, but they couldn't hold a candle to his words and to everything that he was saying. We, we're going to see that wisdom in the defense that he gives in chapter 7 when we read it. And it would seem that, that these synagogue leaders saw this knowledge and they saw the power of the Spirit in Stephen. But we know that seeing is not receiving. They heard him, but they refused to accept his words. Rather, as is often the case when you have an argument with someone and you realize that you can't win the argument, they just started to begin to attack his character and to bring up false accusations. That was how they were going to deal with this argument. He was right. They saw it, so they just attacked him. They stirred up the crowds then, and and they started to, and the religious leaders, and they were against him, and that eventually led to Stephen being arrested and being brought before this council. So they created this whole smear campaign uh, in our day and age, it, it'd be like, you know, they paid uh, to have untrue attack ads on local television so everyone thought Stephen was a bad guy. They put up billboards with quotes from Stephen taken out of context. So everyone thought that Stephen was some sort of uh, a rebel. They had this smear campaign going. And, and and we as we look at this, as you think about this, it reminds me of why having men of unassailable character as leaders in the church was so important then and is so important now. Stephen's accusers couldn't argue with the strength of his teaching, but they also couldn't argue with the integrity of his life or the strength of his spirit. He was like Daniel, who even when they sought to find dirt on him, they couldn't. They just had to make it up. And like his Savior Jesus it was only when they could twist Stephen, Stephen's word and make up accusations that they were able to finally arrest him. As we think about that, I'm just reminded that as we share the gospel with others, that the gospel should be the only thing that offends others. The gospel should be the only thing, the truth of it should be the only thing that might be a barrier to someone coming to faith, not our manner of life, not our, our character or how we speak. If our friends and our neighbors have to reject the gospel, let it be because let it not be because our lives or our church or how we act that that causes offense, but only because the gospel causes offense. So what are these accusations they bring against Stephen? It's important to see these as we think about how he's going to defend himself. And we see two sets of accusations. The first is in verse 11. They instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And the second is in verse 13. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. So Moses and God, the temple, and the law. Stephen's against all of that. There's not much more within Jewish culture that Stephen could have been against that would have upset the people in Jerusalem anymore. That's like living in Louisville and saying, I don't like UK, I don't like U of L. I don't like horse racing, and I don't like bourbon. You, you know, I mean, some of you probably are that right now. So you feel like you're against all those things, and you know, 
you're out of it, I guess. But that's how Stephen was. He was against everything that Jerusalem held dear. We could see from these four different accusations, though, I think it's in fact that they're parallel. So Stephen was accused of speaking firstly against God and the temple, and then Moses and the law. The, the temple were, was where God was said to dwell, and the law was closely tied to Moses. And so I think that those are parallel accusations. You're against God and the temple. You're against Moses and the law. But however you slice it, Stephen is being accused of undercutting the core of the Jewish faith. He's going against everything that they stood for. These accusations are similar to the ones brought against Jesus. Remember, Jesus is accused of blasphemy against God and of saying that he would destroy the temple. In fact, this whole scene reminds us of Jesus' mock trial, doesn't it? And the way that the crowd was stirred up against Jesus, all the way to the point when that when Stephen dies, he asks that God would forgive his killers because they don't know what they're doing. Stephen is following in the footsteps of Jesus. So in chapter 7, these are the accusations that Stephen's responding to, that he is speaking against God in the temple, that he's speaking against Moses and the law. And in responding to his accusers and before this council, he's going to show them the depth of his wisdom and the power of the spirit that is in him. He wisely meets his listeners where they're at. He speaks to them as brothers and as fathers in the common Jewish faith. And as those who respected Moses and the law and God in the temple so deeply, he chooses to rehearse some of their common history. And yet, while he meets them where they're at, he boldly takes all these accusations that they have made against him, and he turns them on his accusers. He says, it's not me who disrespects God in the temple, it's you. It's not me who disrespects Moses and the law, it's you. He reveals in his great respect for and his intimate knowledge of the Old Testament that he was not a blasphemer. And in his specific points, he shows that it's them who reject God. And they, by rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, are the ones who have misunderstood and misinterpreted God's ways. And in the rejection of Jesus, the righteous one, they are the ones that have blasphemed. And in all of this, he stands before them, verse 15 says, with the face of an angel. Now we hear that phrase and we have certain ways that we think about what that means. I don't think it means that he was childlike or that he was peaceful like we might say, oh, that kid has the face of an angel. I don't think that's what it's talking about here. I think rather it shows that he was inspired, that he commanded respect, that he was speaking as a messenger from God himself. That's what an angel is, a messenger from the presence of God. You know, I wonder too, this context of Moses, did his face in some way remind them of Moses whose face shone with the glory of God when he came down from the mountain. And now this man who's being accused of blaspheming God and Moses speaks in God's authority as a messenger of God with a face shining like Moses's did. Well, he speaks and he defends what he's been accused of. And I want us to take the time to read all of Stephen's defense. It's a longer section. We're going to read verses 1 through 53 this afternoon. And so as I read that, let me give you some things to be looking for so that you can track with such a long passage. Uh, first, the thing to look for that is kind of a structure. There's four scenes in Stephen's defense that center around, center around key figures and time periods within Israel's history. So the first scene, verses 1 through 8, focuses on, on Abraham and the establishment of the covenant. So you might just think about Abraham. Um, the second scene in verses 9 through 16 focuses on Joseph and the time 
when Israel went down to Egypt. And so you might think about Joseph in verses 9 through 16. Verses 17 uh, through the longest section, 17 uh, through 43, speak about Moses, about his calling and his leadership in Israel. So we think about Moses a lot. And then beginning in chapter, verses 44 through 47, we move into David and Solomon and the transition from the tabernacle to the temple. And then um, Stephen's going to apply these things in verses 48 through 53 with some really strong indictments on his hearers. So we see um, we see Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and then David and Solomon. Stephen knew his Old Testament. This is all just from memory, you know. He doesn't have anything in front of him. He has no notes. This is spur of the moment, inspired by God's Spirit, of course. But he knew his Old Testament. And so he lays out these key points in Israel's history. So that, those are the four scenes. Secondly, keep in mind this. This is our big idea from the text that we're going to flesh out. It's this. The Lord does not dwell in temples made with hands, but in his redeemed people. The Lord does not dwell in temples made with hands, but in his redeemed people. As Stephen speaks, he's, he's driving to a couple of main conclusions. And one of them is the statement in verse 48 where he says, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. The second major idea that we're going to look at next week is in verse 51, and it's this idea that God's people have always resisted the Holy Spirit and his prophets just as they are resisting Jesus. And we're going to see that uh, next week. But for this afternoon, we're just going to think on this truth that the Lord does not dwell in temples made with hands, but in his redeemed people. And it's in light of that truth, as as I read, to, that, that as I read this, I want you to just to look at locations. There's a lot of place names in this, a lot of cities, a lot of um, regions and places that are mentioned in Stephen's defense. So as we go through, and if you mark your Bible, if you like to underline stuff, it may be helpful even to underline all the different cities and places and regions that are listed here because there's a lot of them. Um, and as you look at them, as, as we read through and you hear all these place names, try to think of why Stephen is making such a big deal out of where everyone was when specific things happened. Why is he pointing that out in Israel's history? He doesn't have to say the locations of where everything happened. Why is he doing that? So with these things in mind, that 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 four-point sort of outline that he's going through, and this big idea, the Lord does not dwell in temples made with hands, but in his redeemed people, I want us to read. And I want us to read acknowledging that this is worth our time to read that the most significant thing that could happen in the sermon may be me simply reading Stephen's words recorded for us. It's definitely more important than anything or any comment that I might make on them. So let's hear these as God's word to us and hear them with open and teachable hearts. Acts 7, beginning in verse 1 through verse 53. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out of the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land 
in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out 
performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. As Stephen defends himself before the council against these accusations that he spoke against God and the temple, he makes this point. He says, the Lord does not dwell in temples made with hands, but in his redeemed people. And he makes that point by tracing not only Israel's history, but where they were in their history. Think about this. When God first calls Abraham, he calls him when he is an idol worshiper living in Ur in Mesopotamia, even before he's just north of the promised land in Haran. And in both places... God called Abraham as the father of his people, the Israelites, and he called him out of his homeland into the land of Canaan. And yet Abraham, who was called out of foreign lands, never even possesses any of the land himself. He's a nomad and he's a wanderer in the land and elsewhere. The land which was so revered by the Israelites was not something that Abraham, the forefather of them all, knew as his own. And Abraham never saw a temple to God. But Abraham did know God's presence and he knew God's blessing. Stephen points out that Abraham was blessed with Isaac, the child of promise that was born to he and Sarah when they were in their 90s. And they were given this covenant of circumcision. They were made God's covenant family. They received all of these blessings, not the land, but all of these blessings while never possessing an actual piece of Canaan. 
The land wasn't theirs, but God was with them. And God blessed them. We read in the rest of Genesis about Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's twelve sons, of whom Joseph arose as a leader. But in their jealousy, his brothers refused to entertain the thought of bowing down to their younger brother Joseph. And so they sold him in slavery to Egypt. And so Joseph left the promised land and went to, of all places, Egypt. And yet verse 9 tells us that God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph in Egypt. He was away from Canaan. He was not, he was away from Canaan, but he was not away from the presence of the Lord. God was with him to bless him. And in fact, God used Joseph's presence in Egypt, though it was intended for evil, as a means of blessing the descendants of Abraham. And in fact, the family of Jacob, including Jacob himself, end up leaving the promised land and coming to Egypt, where they are blessed. They're blessed with food, and they're blessed with land, and they, they grow there in the midst of famine. God provides for them, and God is with them in Egypt. That's where they increase and multiply. God continues to be with them in Egypt, and he sends Moses as their deliverer, even though they reject his first attempt at leadership, and they grumble at all of his subsequent attempts. And when they do, Moses is out in Midian on Mount Sinai, where God appears to Moses and calls for him to go back into Israel, or back to the children of Israel, and to bring them out of Egypt. God comes to him in this burning bush, this great scene from the Old Testament. And Moses approaches the bush. It's a bush in Midian. It's not in the promised land. It's on Mount Sinai. And God tells him that the ground he is standing on is what? It's holy. This is holy ground. It was set apart and it was sacred because God's presence was there in that place. We read about this continued rejection of Moses as their leader, but we also see that God made a way for his people to be among him, for his presence to stay with them. He had them build this tabernacle, a place where they could meet with God, a place where his presence would be among them, a place that was described to Moses while the Israelites were fashioning a golden idol. But through the tabernacle, God traveled with Israel throughout all of their wilderness wanderings. And he traveled with them into the land of Canaan with Joshua. And it wasn't even until Solomon reigned that the temple was built in Jerusalem. What's Stephen's point? I think he's saying the history of Israel was not a history that was centered solely on them being in the land of Canaan with the temple. In fact, for many years they were not in Canaan. And yet God's presence was still with them and the temple was nowhere to be found. In fact, the temple is just such a small point in Stephen's sermon. We know, too, that the temple that was there when Stephen was alive was not the same temple that Solomon had built. It was much smaller. And that same temple is going to be destroyed very soon in A.D. 70. So why all the places? Why the lack of emphasis on the land and on the temple? What's the point of Stephen's history lesson? I think it's the way that he concludes his sermon in verse 48 and the quotation from Isaiah 66 that drives home the point. He wants the people to see that the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. He wants his hearers to see that he's not blaspheming the temple. He's rightly understanding that the temple is not the only place that God's presence can dwell. That God has never been tied to one particular place. God has never been tied to one spot of ground. The earth is his, and he has always worked and blessed wherever he has pleased. 
So the coming of Jesus then is the fulfillment of all these things. Jesus who dwells, and as John tells us, tabernacles among us. Jesus who then sends his spirit among us so that God's presence is even more clearly not relegated to one simple place in Jerusalem. You remember when the tabernacle, if you read further in that passage that Jake read, that when the tabernacle and the temple are built, fire and smoke come and mark the presence of God in those places. But they also in some way keep the people from entering in. Only the priests could come into the holy place and only by sacrifices of the shedding of blood and only once a year. But now, through faith in the shed blood of Jesus, we are able to enter into the holy place. And in fact, we become the holy place of God's presence. On Pentecost, the tongues of fire and the rushing wind represent God's presence among his people. And it's not just one flame and one wind, but it's individual flames of fire on each believer, showing that God is now among and in each individual person who trusts in Christ. Stephen wants his hearers to see that something completely new has come. That Jesus as the Messiah through his death and resurrection has made the physical temple obsolete. Does he destroy the temple? In a sense, yes. He destroys the temple of his body, he says, and then raises it up three days later. And he destroys the temple, but he destroys it by fulfilling everything that it stood for. So that when it does crumble in AD 70, God's people know that God is still with them, even if the temple is not there. God's presence is still there. The temple stood for for God's presence among his people, and it was through the sacrifices of that place that people could come to God. But now that Jesus has come, that Jesus is the Lamb of God, now that he has paid the penalty for sin once for all, we can be made right with God, and we can know his loving presence with us all the time. By faith in Jesus, we become the temple and God's presence lives in each of us individually. And it lives in us as a church. But that's only possible through repentance and faith. It can't be through the work of our hands. This seems to be part of the issue that Stephen's also addressing. It was the issue when Moses was away and they were seeking to worship this golden calf because it wasn't just the calf. Verse 41 of, of 41 of, of Acts 7 says, And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. They're rejoicing in what they could do. And the temple had come to, to symbolize the pride and the things that the, the people could do to come near to God, to meet God. But when Jesus comes, the gospel denies all of the works of our hands and we must trust in Jesus alone who lived and died to make us his own. So this new covenant reality, I think is what Stephen is trying to drive home and he's trying to say that this is how it's always been, but now in Christ, this is the fulfillment of this, that the Lord does not dwell in temples made with hands, but rather he dwells in his redeemed people and this came up against the religious system and it came up against the pride of men and so it was rejected as it is today but when we accept this this idea this reality there's deep implications this all feels very theological doctrinal somewhere up there why why is stephen making a big deal out of the fact that the lord doesn't dwell in a temple but rather in his people 
Because it changes everything. Let me give you three implications of this. If the Lord does not dwell in temples made with hands, but with His people, then this is what we know. There's no need to stay in Jerusalem, and there's no requirement to go to Jerusalem. There's no need to stay in Jerusalem, and there's no requirement to go to Jerusalem. The early church is still in Jerusalem. Where are they supposed to be? They're supposed to be in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But remember that the vast majority of the church, all of the church at this point, are Jewish believers who have believed that Jesus is the Messiah. And they're probably still holding pretty tightly to what Jerusalem represents and what the temple represents. And slowly they're realizing that the temple doesn't matter anymore, that we are the temple. We don't need to stay in Jerusalem. There's no need for us to be near to this place. We can leave and we can go. And that's what's going to happen here at the end of the chapter. But also there's no requirement for us to go to Jerusalem. Some of you have been. Joel and Evelyn just got back. They're not here. I know uh, Trevor and Carolyn have been to to Israel. Has anyone else been to Israel? I've not been to Israel. Would it be fun to go? Yeah. Do we have to? No. There's no need to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Is God's presence more in Jerusalem than it is in Louisville, Kentucky? No, it's not. There may be a uniqueness of the place that draws us into recognizing God's presence more in a unique way, but it's not more there than it is here. And so we see that the the church didn't need to stay in Jerusalem and we don't make pilgrimages. That's not part of, of, of who we are as a people. This is how uh, David Peterson, he sort of summarizes this from the sermon. Hear what he says. Stephen's speech, therefore, has a very important function in the narrative of Acts. It shows that the expulsion of the earliest Christians from Jerusalem and the temple was the result of their preaching of Christ, which raised questions about the permanence of the institutions of Judaism. Furthermore, it provides a theological introduction to Luke's narrative of the Gentile mission by reaffirming that the Lord of heaven and earth cannot be tied to a single place and that Jesus, as the Son of Man, has been exalted to the right hand of God. Devotion to the temple must not halt the advance of the divine plan for the people of God, which focuses on Jesus, the glorified Messiah, who is the Lord of all. The fact that Jesus is with us at all times in all places and not in one specific location is what makes Christianity something that can spread to the ends of the earth and bridge all cultural gaps because it's not tied to one place because we are the temple indwelt by God's Spirit. We are all temples. We are tabernacles taking God's presence with us wherever we go. So there's no need to stay in Jerusalem and there's no requirement to go to Jerusalem. Secondly, and this is a long statement, I'll read it and maybe try to simplify it. We don't make sacred spaces. God does by his presence. So we don't create a space as sacred. God's presence is what makes a space sacred. So therefore, every space and every moment can be sacred when we acknowledge God's abiding presence in us. Let me take a step back and try to explain what I want to try to explain. Um, 
we, we think about certain places as more holy, as more sacred, that, that God is more in certain spots. But we don't create sacred spaces. God makes a space sacred by his presence. So when Moses is told to take off his sandals because the ground is holy, we know that there wasn't anything particular about that rock or that square foot of dirt that made it holy, but it was the fact that God's presence was there that made it holy. And if God lives in all of us, and if God is everywhere present, then everything that we do can be an act of worship, and every moment of every day can be holy. And every place that we go is a place where God's presence is. We don't make spaces sacred. God does by his presence. And so therefore, every space and every moment that we have in our lives can be a sacred space, a sacred moment, a holy moment, when we acknowledge God's abiding presence in us. Let me read something else. I brought lots of books with me because I was trying to process what this all meant. This is one of my new favorite books that my wife got me, Every Moment Holy. It's liturgies for every moment of life, for different circumstances, mundane and significant. In the foreword, Andrew Peterson writes this. He first quotes Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry wrote, There are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. In that spirit, this book reminds us that there are no unsacred moments. There are only sacred moments, and moments we have forgotten are sacred. If that's true, then it is our duty to reclaim the sacredness of our lives, of life itself. And the first step is to remember, to remember the dream of Eden that shimmers at the edges of things, to remember that the madman on the corner was made in God's image, to remember that work and play and suffering and celebration are all sentences in a good story being told by God, a story arcing its way to a new creation. By remembering the holiness of each moment we banish, by remembering the holiness of each moment, we banish that old Gnostic ghost, ghost and thwart its lie that there's nothing holy about flesh and bone, soil and stone, work and pleasure and all tangible, tactical, visible things. The resurrection of Jesus sent shockwaves into every molecule of creation, even into this crazy century of ones and zeros and jet engines. If the gospel is true, then it matters in all of time and space, from a thousand years ago at the Norman conquest of England to ten minutes ago when I ate a cookie. It matters from the moons of Jupiter to the couch where I'm writing this. Yes, I realize that I just conjured the less than flattering image of myself lazing on a couch brushing cookie crumbs from my laptop. But that's exactly the point. The gospel matters even here, even now. A wise man taught me Christianity ought to be as normal in your home as dirty laundry and cornflakes. This is where we live. It's in the mundane of everyday life, but God is with us in all the mundane pieces of life. And so Douglas McElvey can write a liturgy for the changing of diapers. And this is what it says. Some of you have to change diapers. Is that a holy moment? Is that a place where God's presence resides? Heavenly Father, in such menial moments as this, the changing of a diaper, I would remember this truth. My unseen labors are not lost, for it is these repeated acts of small sacrifice that, like bright, ragged patches, are slowly being sewn into a quilt of loving kindness that swaddles this child. I am not just changing a diaper. 
by love and service, I am tending a budding heart that rooted early in such grace-filled devotion might one day be more readily inclined to bow to your compassionate conviction, knowing itself then as both receptacle and a reservoir of heavenly grace. So this little act of diapering, though in form sometimes felt as base drudgery, might be better described as one of 10,000 acts by which I am actively creating a culture of compassionate service and selfless love to shape the life of this family and this beloved child. So take this unremarkable act of necessary service, O Christ, and in your economy let it be multiplied into that greater outworking of worship and of faith, a true investment in the incremental advance of your kingdom across generations. Open my eyes that I might see this act for what it is from that fixed vantage point of eternity. O Lord, how the changing of a diaper might sit upstream of the changing of a heart. How the changing of a heart might sit upstream of the changing of the world. You ever think about changing a diaper that deeply? And yet all of our moments, if God truly is in us and we are the temple, the tabernacle of God Himself, and if He is everywhere present, then every moment that we have as His children is sacred and set apart and can be used for His glory. We don't make sacred spaces. God does by His presence. And if He is everywhere present and if He is in us, then every space and every moment that we have can be sacred when we pause and we acknowledge God's presence with us, when we remember who He is and that He is in us. Not just changing of diapers, but the list goes on and on. It's innumerable. Everything that we do can be done for the glory of God in His presence. I think some people would say in response to that idea, then I don't need to go to church, do I? I find God's presence more clearly in the woods or on the golf course or at home. And if God's everywhere present, then why do I need to come to church? Because some people think of church as the place where you come to meet God, that this is God's house. Sometimes we call it that. We're going to God's house. That's probably Stephen would not appreciate that. And to that I would say this, the church is the unique display of God's presence and glory in this world. This is the last thing I want to say. The church is the unique display of God's presence and His glory in the world. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul speaks of each believer as the temple of God's Spirit, and therefore he calls us to holiness. But he also says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17 that the church is God's temple, and God's Spirit dwells in us as a people. And so there is a uniqueness to the gathering of the church. And not because of a particular space. I mean, buildings are, are good and they're helpful, but they're, they're not necessary. That's good for us to hear, right? Here's what Frederick Buechner says. The old church walls, the old church roofs were put up in the faith that if God is present anywhere in the world, He is present everywhere. And it, that if the ground that Moses stood on was holy, then the little patches of ground where churches stand are holy too. The whole earth is holy because God makes Himself known on it, which means that in the sense that sense, a church is no holier than any other place. God is not more in a church than he is anywhere else. But what makes a church holy in a special way is that we ourselves are more present in it. I think that's true, that when we come with God's people, we're more present in a space. I think there's something about beautiful buildings that help us to think about the greatness of who God is. But there's also something about God's people gathered that help us to remember the greatness of who God is the reflection of each person. The church, of course, is not 
the physical space, but it's the gathering of God's people. And in gathering us, his spirit-filled people, we are his temple. We are that even now. Can you believe that? How strange that is to think that those of us who have put faith in Christ, that we even now are indwelt by his spirit. And we are gathered together as many temples to be this temple, Grace Fellowship Church, in this moment. And that he's with us now in some unique and special way as we worship him together and as we hear from his word. He's with us as we take up the cup and the bread. It's not his hand that that breaks the bread. It's not his hand that pours the wine, but, but he is here. He is among us. And these things remind us of his deep abiding presence with us. And so we remember him. We remember his death so that we might live and know his abiding presence. We remember what he has done to reconcile us to himself so that we can be with him for all eternity. I want to invite you to pause and remember the sacredness of all moments, but also the sacredness of of this moment where we remember what Christ has done for us. If you've put your faith in Christ alone for salvation, you're not trusting in the work of your hands. You're not trusting in going to some temple or some space. Your hope isn't that you showed up at church today. Your hope is in the fact that you have confessed your sins and you have put your faith in Christ alone for salvation and that that is your hope to know and be with God for all eternity and to be forgiven of your sins. If that's where you're at and you've shown that by being baptized, then I would invite you to take this meal with us and to remember God's presence among us. If that's not the case, I would just ask that you let the bread and the cup pass. And if you have questions, I'd love to talk to you about that. But as we pause and remember what Christ has done for us through his broken body and through his shed blood, let's remember well what he has accomplished, that he has died and risen again so that he can live and dwell in each us, in each of us, so that we can be his children for all eternity.